Welcome to the Combinate Podcast, where we talk pharma, med device, combo products, and everything in between with leaders in the industry. Now on to the episode. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Combinate Podcast. I'm really excited to have our guests on today. We have Larry Mager from Management Control. Hi, Larry. How you doing? Doing great. How are you? Excellent. Solid so far. Um, I'm just going to give a, a quick brief intro about Larry, uh, and then we'll jump into the interview. Uh, Larry's an engineer who holds patents for medical devices that are currently marketed uh, and has over three decades of experience in the medical device industry, including executive quality roles uh, within Fortune 500 companies. Uh, I've talked to him uh, before, and I'm really excited to have him on. His uh, passion for quality uh, literally oozes out of him, and he's a published author uh, of books related to the quality management system and improving it. Um, his books are The Quality Journey and Management Control Quality Plan. Uh, and he has been a, a Las Vegas Raiders fan since the 70s and all the uh, different cities they've moved around. Uh, I'm really happy to have you on, Mary. Thank you. Um, so uh, in, in reading your book, uh, I found it to be kind of foundational. Um, you know, I think it's really hard to um, read regulation and, uh, and read different document, uh, guidance documents uh, and understanding the context where they all fit in. Uh, I thought the, the quality journey was uh, really good in describing uh, just that. Um, when I recently messaged you about the podcast interview, you almost said, you know, yeah, that was great, but forget all that. I'm working on something much bigger and better. Uh, but before we jump uh, into that, um, I really enjoyed the quotes that you had in the book. So as we get the episode percolating, any quotes on your mind that you'd like to share with the audience? Not off the top of my head. Okay. Um, well, uh, well, if you think of one, just jump in and let me know. So um, one concept that you have that I really like uh, that I wanted you to dig into a little bit uh, is the difference between uh, quality with a little Q and one with a big Q. Can you, can you walk me through that? Yeah, absolutely. I think all too often in the life sciences industry, people get caught up with the quality organization and, and what, what that is, big Q, but everybody owns quality, little Q. So I like to differentiate um, quality with a little Q in that everybody owns quality, Certainly, that's something that's been said before by different people, but I think it, it helps r remind myself and others that uh, when we're talking about little Q quality, everybody is responsible for that, and everybody plays a role in that. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I read an article recently that talked about, um, you know, quality is it everyone's job, somebody's job, or no one. And I think the distinction that you give when, when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the big Q and little Q is uh, big Q has uh, pretty specific ownership, right? Uh, little Q involves everybody. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you talk about management responsibility? I think your, your company um, 
specializes in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the concept of um, where everything, I think, begins is with management responsibility. And it's something that is overlooked quite often. If, if a company um, is going to be successful or any organization or what anybody's trying to do, even within a project, uh, you can trace the success or failure always, in my opinion, back to the responsible management. And I don't necessarily always mean responsible management in terms of those people. Uh, sometimes it's the responsible management as in terms of how something was was planned for and executed and managed along the way. So it's a combination of those two. And management responsibility is really an important topic whenever you're talking about uh, quality in, in any organization. Yeah. Now, now you've worked with, uh, you know, company, companies of various structures, right, from, from small to large. Um, you know, and, and you've worked with companies who've had um, issues. Now, do you, do you struggle with the um, concept of management responsibility and management controls in general? Uh, when you go into companies like that, um, you know, boiling up to executive executive management, uh, I guess the question that I have is, um, you know, you're coming in, knocking on the door and saying, hey, um, the person at the top or someone that reports into them, uh, it's, it's almost your responsibility to have this under control, not, you know, the person who's actually executing the procedure or process. Yeah, that's I mean? actually... Yep, yep, that's a great, great question. Um, so the best answer is regardless of whether it's a role that I've been internal to an organization or a role external in supporting some improvement effort, it is always difficult to, um, in, a, in as sensitive a way as possible, uh, work with management and, and get them to understand that um, the results that they're dealing with today are uh, are that way because of, of how they have managed or how people have managed in the past or lack thereof. So, yes, it's, you know, it's never easy to to open that kind of discussion, but it is very important that uh, the discussions begin and end with management responsibility. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think uh, it's kind of related to another um, concept that you talk about um, and that is seeing David in the stone. Uh, is, it, is it difficult to help executive management see the David in the, in the stone if it's a, a tough situation that they're in? Well, uh, that's exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Seeing David in the stone was more somewhat of a, a personal um a personal thing that happened. There was a book that I read and it was about how, um, you know, David had to be seen in the stone before it could be carved, the David could be carved. And the concept of the first two books that I had written were really the idea that I would be able to convey um, the concept of, you know, the management responsibility and the journey of improving quality through uh, a certain direction. And where I am today um, is more of 
having decided that I needed to take the next step beyond just explaining what that journey was and put some sort of framework in place uh, that would help uh, people, other people, better see the David in the stone. And it was the David that I envisioned, not that it is the only uh, David from a quality perspective. And that's, that's pretty important is to be able to not only say, here's where we need to go, but here's how we need to go there. And that's what predictive quality management is really all about. Yes, I, I appreciate that. But stick, sticking with the, with the metaphor of David, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? The stone wasn't all that pretty, right? <laughs> no, there were, um, there were previous people that had tried to carve that stone and, and failed. And um, when, when the task was given to um, carve uh, a David in the stone, it took um, a special effort. It took many tries. It took lots of what they called uh, slaves, smaller stones where things were tried and created. There were successes and failures. Some were used in the David, some were not until finally um, it was possible for a David to emerge out of a very imperfect stone. And I think that's, again, it's, it's um, the challenge we all have. There's never a perfect anything, not timing, not circumstances. Um, there's never the perfect anything. And what we have to have is a vision of where we're going to go and a methodology of how we're going to get there to improve quality. Yeah, no, I appreciated that. So he ran some feasibility studies, huh, before he actually started cutting. <laughs> That's a way uh, to say it. <laughs> so, um, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the quality journey, and, and I'm excited to talk about predictive quality management. Um, what motivated you to write the quality journey to begin with? Uh, I had worked for a company that uh, was a very good company, and it had received um, multiple... Um, FDA 43 observations was medical device manufacturer uh, across multiple manufacturing locations. And I was in a, a, a role as the uh, head of quality at one of the manufacturing locations. And myself and the other heads of quality were called to the corporate headquarters to, in essence, write a new quality management system, QMS in order to uh, create a corporate system and be able to bring that back to our manufacturing locations and implement it. And of course, the, it didn't occur in one city and there was many months of back and forth of uh, even up to, I think, a year of just creating that system. Uh, but I had also recognized that while we did that, we were trying to remove a, a corporate warning letter um, from the perspective of compliance, and compliance is just one dimension. Uh, the, I think we left a lot on the table because of the circumstances, the regulatory um, enforcement that was up, upon us, and, and by leaving things on the table, we were um, not as effective in getting the results as we could be, and we were not as efficient in doing so um, as a business. And so that sort of led me down this path of saying, there's more to this. Yes, that we were successful in removing that corporate warning letter, but we could have done it better. And, and I felt like 
had we had had a pathway um, and, and, and a vision that because we started from scratch, we probably could have done better. And so the first and even the second book were related to the concept, knowing where I had to go. Um, and, and so that's what really started everything was creating a passion in me. I learned I was not a quality operations person. I did not want to take the quality system and just execute what it was and get the results that it would yield. But the quality of the quality system was what I was more interested in. And so I, I kind of call myself more of a quality systems person today. Yeah, excellent. I, I appreciate that. Um, it, so it, I, I guess it sounds to me like uh, maybe a two, two birds, one stone type situation. Um, you know, you, you guys were hit with um, uh, a 483 uh, that had, you know, compliance related findings. Um, but the kind of, uh, operating principle that you were working off of was compliance first. Um, but I think, you know, what I'm hearing from you is if you focus, um, on what does a good quality system look like for who the customers are and add in a layer of compliance, uh, then it's two birds, one stone. Did I understand that correctly? <laughs> well, um, I don't know that I would characterize it that way. I would say that the ideal would be to um, to already have a pathway, uh, and this gets more into the predictive quality management. It's it's to be predictable. It's to <clears throat> whether you're you're trying to transform your quality system outside of um, direct. Any, any regulatory findings, or you're trying to do it um, within uh, the confines of removing um, enforcement that's been placed upon you, the idea would be that you can do so in, in an, a, a way that's already been thought out, that's, that's more predictable, that's um, easier to manage on a scale that is necessary to, to achieve what you need to in the time frame. that's pretty important. And, and more importantly, I guess, it's something that is usable. Um, if it's during an enforcement activity, it's usable afterwards. Um, but it would be better if it was being used prior to and in preventing any enforcement activity. So it's, pre it's very predictable in how the organization would approach the improvement efforts um, to improve the, the different aspects of, of quality in the company. I see. And so, you know, it just matters where, where you are in, in that journey um, in terms of how you would apply it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I would say I would apply it the same regardless. And I would, I was, I would hope that organizations shift from being more reactive to being more proactive. There's nothing that sh should stop an organization from, um, the, taking that quality journey, especially if it can be put in front of them in a way that enables them to fully understand what that means, um, for them to understand that it, it should not take away from the organization in terms of uh, the efforts of um, fulfilling the mission of the organization, but it's, it's always additive. You're in a predictive and, and predictable way, you're able to consistently improve the quality of, of the, the, the products you, you're providing into the market, 
the processes you use to provide those products um, and and the quality of the people who were doing that work of the processes. So that's kind of more of a way that I'd like to look at it. Yeah, excellent. Um, so uh, one more question before we jump into the, the predictive quality um, uh, management. Um, you know, you talked about the having the responsibility of the quality system and then the, the, the or the quality of the quality system. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the difference between quality system and quality management system? I think it's a nuance that's uh, often ignored, certainly was by me. <laughs> yeah, it's actually not um, in what you can find nowhere in one place, both of those terms defined. So uh, within the FDA um, and and the, the QSRs, they'll define a quality system as um, the the. Actually, let me do it this way first. The, the quality management system consists of uh, per ASQ, the American Society for Quality, uh, consists of the procedures and and the um, instructions and so on and so forth. Uh, the framework for uh, achieving quality, but to, by itself, that's passive. And so the FDA defines quality system, so you, not quality management system, but the quality system is when you add people to that and and execute that, and then that's what a quality system is. It's inclusive of um, enlivening it with the people that do the work. Got it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um... So, okay, jumping into predictive quality management, um, can you boil it down into a few uh, sen sentences conceptually? You talked about the quality journey being a, uh, here is the direction you want to get to. The predictive quality management is how do you get there? Um, and I appreciate you um, kind of clarifying my understanding in that the process is the same implemented. It sounds like kind of a theory of constraints type thing where you know, if, if you're in, whether you're in the negative or in the positive, focus on the most important thing and you'll eventually get to the positive. Um, but can you uh, talk about predictive quality management? Yes. And I appreciate you bringing the theory of constraints into the picture because the concept is that, <clears throat> so, so if you think about most companies, start with that QMS, that quality management system, when they have the need or the want to improve their, uh, the quality of something. And, you know, I, I like to step back and I like to look at a bigger picture, which is, first of all, applying a common framework for internal control to how all those processes and the management of those processes, so that ties into the management responsibility, how that would occur for every um process that is is under this span of control of the quality system. So that's number one, at making sure that they're all run the same way. Um, you have a very consistent approach to how you run and manage processes within the organization. Um, there's an element of proactive risk mitigation. And by that, I mean, um, there's a process by which you can look at something and, and basically ask, how could that fail? And how could we prevent it from failing? And that's important. There are huge things people can do ahead of failure to never have a, have the failure to occur. And then the third part um, would be the capability to measure and understand 
how your processes are doing, not only from a baseline perspective, but then to find the constraint. And so if you're able to measure something, you're able to manage it. And that's a term people have heard or, or a quote people have heard. Uh, but it's true. If, if you're not measuring something, how do you know how it's doing? So the capability to measure is important. And then one other layer to the measurement. Most organizations use what are called key process indicators or KPIs. And, and all by themselves, they won't give you enough information. You use KPIs actually to create algorithm, algorithms that define, for example, how a process is um, effective. And, and so you can be able to measure things like, well, compliance is, is pretty straightforward and people know how to measure compliance, but to measure the effectiveness of those processes and then the efficiency of those processes. So measurement has to be something that is looking at it from more of a, um, an outcome perspective or a business perspective. The, the so, next layer, oh, I'm sorry. No, sorry, sorry, Jim, keep going. Well, the next layer down is where you execute those processes with, within that structure of, of management. Um, I'll, I'll let you ask the next question. No, sorry. So, um, you know, before we jump on to the, the next layer, everything that you you were talking about was related to product, right? I think, you know, you mentioned where the failures uh, could occur. Um, that's that, that sounded like design reliability, um, FMEA and, and things like that. Um, is that. Is that correct? No, actually, it, it, it does apply to both product and process um, alike. You, you can look at the structure of a process and um, understand how you, how that process, you have, a, you have an intention for what that process is supposed to do and the outcome of that process. So um, same with product, you have an intention for how that product is supposed to perform and, and the capability to measure product and process both is really important in addition to the capability to measure people which is a little bit different than the product and process but you have to be able to measure people product and process no excellent so i guess the question that i have related to that is how does one go about pressure testing uh uh processes and we're not we're not talking manufacturing processes here we're talking about uh proceduralized processes correct yeah. Um, pressure testing. So <clears throat> all too often I hear or you'll see people focused on some process that in some way failed and they want to fix it. They want to improve it. And, and they start asking questions about the process. And, and this, again, goes back to management responsibility. But the first questions that have to be asked are not about the process. They're actually about the people. And people are so important because that's who does the work of the process. So before we get to the quality of the process, we, we need to understand what skill set is needed to execute that process. Not all processes require the same skill sets or even the same um, high or low levels of skill. But it's important that we put people who have the right skill set in place. The next is, are they trained? And that just means we're, we're going to put the effort in to make sure that they understand 
there's no doubt what we expect. There's no doubt uh, as to what the outcome should be. And that training is very important. And all too often, people stop there, management stops there, and, and they say go. But the third part is competency. There has to be a proving of the, of the competency. You put the two parts together, the people in the process, and, and so you've got skilled trained people executing the process. Were they able to get the desired result in a controlled situation? And so the first step in pressure testing a process, using your term, the first step is to make sure that we've brought adequate resources. So the term adequate is pretty important, and that's actually was in the FDA QSRs. Adequate means suitable in quantity and quality. So I already talked about the quality part. If, if I have a process and I understand the volume and the tack time to, to handle a, an amount of volume, then I know how to bring the quantity. So all too often, you see organizations not get the results out of a process and forgetting the current level of quality, little Q of that process, they don't bring enough resources or they don't bring enough, um, so they don't bring adequate resources, suitable in quantity and quality. They're not properly skilled, trained or competent or in the proper numbers. So that's number one. Don't even ask me about the outcome of a process. If per management responsibility, you didn't do your job and bring adequate resources to get the job done for the organization. How, how does, um, how does one, uh, how does one, um, I guess, get to the point that, um, you know, you would, uh, assign quantity perhaps as a root cause for a process, um, not working. I guess I think the, the first line of defense would be, well, it's, it's a, it's a poor process if it's not working. <laughs> I know that is, that's, People do jump to that. Um, you know, I'll give you an anecdotal example and not mention any, any names, but there was one organization who the FDA had worked with on their complaint process. And the company took great pride in rebuilding their complaint organization. They brought all the, the, the complaint departments together in one place in a corporate area, in a corporate place. And they really put together a, a, a good solid process for processing complaints. Um, and this is true story. There, there came a holiday party and uh, for, for that group and people, you know, they got the next week, people didn't come to work. There were so many, several people who had gotten ill and everybody kind of laughed and said, boy, that must've been some kind of party. Wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, laughing. The problem was they didn't recognize until they weren't able to meet their uh, timeline responsibilities that, that are mandated by regulation um, because they didn't have the right number of people. So what was it the fault of the process that was just rebuilt and really works well? Or was it the fault of management and not having backup plans? You know, they had built a, and, and rightfully so, they had built a lean team in terms of the number of people to execute the volumes that they saw, but they weren't really ready to um, uh, buffer and and backfill with 
other trained people in the case that something like that occurred. So uh, that's why it's not always the process first. You have to look at it's the people are the fuel that that drive the process. And you have to be able to understand your organization from that with any process from that perspective first. Yeah, got it. Um, so I, I guess the, digging into that deeper, um, the, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, being thoughtful is a really important part of predictive quality management because it's not so much uh, that you're working on something, it's that you're working on, you know, precisely the right thing first. Um, what type of prioritization exercises um, do you push for when it comes to predictive quality management and how does uh, a company decide what to work on first? Yeah, that's a great question. And then, and then a, a follow-up question to that um, as, as you think about the responses, uh, do you recommend uh, you know, folks focusing on more than one thing at one time? Yeah. So first of all, you know, and I've, I've said this in this way before, when people, you know, not that everybody drives to work <clears throat> so much these days, a lot of work is done offsite, but, but I've always said when people drive to work and they get out of their car in the parking lot and they're going in, they want to be able to do their job and, and be successful and go home satisfied. So in, in general, um, The idea is to tell the organization what we want you to do. So it's it's quelling chaos. We want you to execute in your job. We're not asking, you know, I, I dislike it when organizations tax and say, we're looking for 5% improvement this year. And they have everybody working on improvement. How about have everybody just execute their role? And then if you're measuring, number one, all the roles, you can actually see where you have a significant area of constraint. And by constraint, I mean, you know, that which is least productive or most hurtful, harmful to your organization is where you have to focus to get better the quickest. So that's pretty important to be able to look across and say, level of well, compliance is binary, it's black or white, but what level of effectiveness or what level of efficiencies are we expecting and what do we really have? So if something is really, um, ineffective or inefficient, it probably should be addressed as a priority. But thereafter, not all processes are equal. <clears throat> um, there are certain processes which I put more in the realm of management control. And by that, I mean, you know, CAP is a great one. If you, if your CAPA process suffers, either because of the design of how you approach CAPA or the people that you have trained, and you're not able to work through your um, your issues that go into Kappa. Um, you're not able to, you know. I call Kappa. Uh, it's the or it's the part of the quality management system that, or the quality system that heals everything. So if you're not able to have an effective Kappa uh, outcome, you you're not able to to get better. If you're not able to conduct an effective management review, you're not able to see what it is you have to work on. If you're not able to do good post-market surveillance, you're not, not able to see the quality of your product in the marketplace in terms of performance. Um, if you're not able to um, 
conduct effective recalls. You're, you're putting people at risk and you're at significant regulatory risk. So there are certain processes that, that you look at and you say, that process is more important to me than uh, another process that would be less peripheral to impacting the ability of the organization to sustain itself from the perspective of management control. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, well, one comment then, then in follow-up then. So then if an organization is first able to get control of those processes, they're more likely to gain larger control over quality outcomes, predictive quality outcomes, um, in a way that, that benefits the organization long-term. Yeah, so I, I, I heard a couple of things, I guess, that, that helped answer the, the question that I originally asked is, um, you know, ultimately going back to management responsibility, it's management's responsibility to make the call on what is the priority. Uh, the data sets that they have to work on, uh, you know, to, to figure out what, what the list is before you go into prioritization is the, the various quality systems. Most notably, you mentioned Kappa, uh, because that's where uh, you're getting uh, input, whether it's from complaints or, or wherever, that you need to make a change. Yeah. Um, so we, we talked a lot about uh, post-market, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Kappa, you mentioned complaints, you mentioned recalls. Uh, is predictive quality management something that can be applied to new product development? And, you know, if so, how, what does that look like? Yes, it, it absolutely can be applied to predictive quality or to uh, design control. But, you know, I, and, and please forgive me. Um, it's, I said this one time in a meeting and, and people gasped, but <clears throat> there is not one product that is currently in development that has ever harmed anybody. And so the po point I'm trying to make is while design control is extremely important, um, it's probably a second or even a third tier in terms of, uh, from my perspective, I focus post-market like crazy. Now, where you can use predictive quality. Yeah, apologies. Give me, give me a second to pick my job off the floor. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, well, I, I asked the question, you know, for, for the folks that are involved in the design space, you know, what, what, what type of lessons or wisdom can they gain from the uh, predictive quality management, you know, so as to avoid even getting to the, the point where you have to, I guess, apply it in the, you know, where you have issues. Yep, and that's where I was going. Where I was going, and it's it's that idea that if if the design control people are truly tuned in to what the post market um, activity is to understand the quality and the performance of the product and how that's managed, that'll that will help them. As a matter of fact, in the new fourteen nine seventy one twenty nineteen standard you actually even launch a product until you describe the feedback system that you're going to use to measure and monitor the, the performance of that product, not only in production, as you transfer essential design outputs into production. And so you're gonna transfer that into terms of critical quality control. 
So you have to be able to look at that and understand it. And then how did that control manifest in terms itself in terms of the quality of the product in the market? And so that's that's I think that's where people need to focus. Um, that that's a really important concept. And so from the design control world, it is an important world. Don't don't let my my um, example uh, fool you. I, I know you know it's important. Um, I'm more of, so let me, let me explain to you my perspective of why I said what I said. All, all too often, there is an um, effort to remediate or transform a, a quality system. And people, or, or a new standard like 14971 comes into play. And people will put a stake in the ground and they'll say, so for this day, from this day forward, here's how we're going to do it. But what about all the legacy products in the market? And so I'm very much post-market focused, um, although you have to be able to, to bring those paradigms back into design control and make the connectivity. So um, yeah, I apologize if I was more uh, rude in how I answered that, but uh, design control is important. It just has to be there. People have to think in terms of the life cycle of the product more so than than ever before. Yeah. And, and, and that's sort of why I asked the question, uh, you know, from a from a, a standards perspective, kind of the forward thinking is already sort of baked in um, in, in terms of managing that risk. Yeah. Um, what what is what is something that is uh, misunderstood about predictive quality management? Oh, I think it's such a new topic that that I'll, I'll, I'd like to rephrase that. It's just not as it's just not understood. I think quality <laughs> management in today's life sciences industry is very reactive. You hear the term whack-a-mole. People in quality big Q quality management spend so much time reacting to the problems of the system that they never get ahead of it by saying, let's put in a framework that helps us focus on what we should focus on and how we should react and what we should be working on. So instead of what's misunderstood, I would just say it is not well understood yet. Um, and then the next step would be that if there is something that's misunderstood, it is the idea that we're not trying to fix everything at once. We're trying to get ourselves in a in a place of quelling the chaos and control and execution. And then from there, the management team will bring quality little Q, quality improvement efforts for those things that need to be improved. And they'll do that in a very predictable way. And, and <clears throat> from that point forward, the organization can run in a manner where the idea of improving something is just built in as, yeah, that's what we're improving right now. That's, that's how we improve. It's not a special thing. It's, it's what the organization does on a routine and consistent basis. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a quote that came to mind when uh, you were giving your answer. Um, I forget who said it, but it's something to the effect of you can't get out of something you never got into. So you can't <laughs> you can't correct the misunderstanding of something you never tried to understand or got to a point of understanding. Um, right. Well, or or to add on to that, <clears throat> um, 
way before your time. But when when I was just uh, coming out of high school, a book came out and it was called Quality is Free. I'm sure you've heard about it. Philip B. Crosby. Um, and it's interesting. I've had CFOs say to me, if quality is free, why does it cost us so darn much? Well, it, it's this idea that if you're doing what you should be doing in terms of consistent, continual um, improvement activity, quality will pay for itself through ROI. As a matter of fact, and it's a book that I, I keep close and, and I actually have it near to my desk, but it says, the art of making quality certain so on the book cover and how to manage and manage is underlined quality so that it becomes a source of business profit. And that's the efficiency part. So uh, Philip Crosby had the concept way back then. And I'd, I'd like to think that I've, I've been heading in turn in towards a direction of being able to describe to people how to achieve that with predictive quality management ever since. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think, I think we got our quote of the day. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, you, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, I, I did have a question for you about uh, books. What books other than your own do you give people in our industry? It sounded like, uh, you know, you mentioned one, quality is free. Any others that come to mind? Oh, I'm too cheap to give books away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I really... Um, I guess I don't, I don't think about it that way. I think there's people, <clears throat> people gravitate toward what, what inspires them. You know, I'm going to turn around and look at my bookshelf, but you know, there are books out there, uh, good to great, uh, seeing David in the stone, um, zero to one, they're business type books. There's books from uh, Buffett, for example. I think quite frankly, quality people need to understand a lot of uh, business concepts um, in terms of, um, you know, quality does have to fit. It does have to make the business work. It does have to, to pay back to the business. And so I think it, it's more of the concept of like good to great. How do you go from whatever organization or so the quality of the quality system today to what you want the quality of the quality system be tomorrow? You have to want it to be you have to have a goal, an objective, a vision for it to be greater. And then you have to create that path to get there. So I would say it's not really quality books so much as it is more inspirational, you know, things that that drive people to have big visions and, and really go after big objectives. Yeah, no, I, uh, I appreciate that. I noted a couple of them that you mentioned. Um, uh, what's the biggest challenge that you uh, find when you're working with a new company? All too often, organizations, when they do decide to create quality improvement, they do so as, as a special effort. So I talked touched on that a little bit ago. But then the next thing that happens is <clears throat> that special effort turns into a program that... Um, out of necessity sometimes because of regulatory enforcement, um, <clears throat> there's an entire strategy created and the timeline, you know, it's always, a, it's a triangle. You have work defined and you could leverage time and, and fix people in terms of the number, or you could fix people or uh, fix time and leverage people. And so 
what often happens is you bring a lot of people in, you create chaos for the organization. Sometimes it's, it's external people, the wrong messages are sent, which is our internal people aren't good enough. So they're bringing external people. I, I would say it's best to focus on the people. And I see organizations not always focus on their people first. Um, you know, well, it's interesting because I, I always say focus on the product first, meaning take a look at what's the performance or the quality of your legacy product that you're currently marketing, because they're very mechanical things you can do to, to bring that in to be in alignment with the state-of-the-art benefit of patient safety. But then as you're looking at your processes, as I stated earlier, you have to take a look at your people. You have to look at your organization. But the people side of it in process that I described earlier is vastly different than the people pathway to get to a culture of quality. And uh, that's, that's a whole nother discussion that we could and maybe should have, but it, it's sort of a, um, the mistake organizations have is they want to hold up a, a quality policy or a quality statement and think that that's going to create a culture of quality. And that's not what creates a culture of quality. You actually arrive there through a, a succession of other um, gains, gains in terms of trust, uh, communication, uh, gains in terms of um, meeting goals, meeting, creating momentum, multiple goals, and, and building really a personal engagement, a personal accountability of people in an organization to want to participate. Um, you, you don't just arrive at a culture of quality, you have to build these, these different parts within your organization in order to have a robust organization that can, and it, it becomes powerful. I, I've always said it's like lighting a grass fire and then you watch it spread. It's, it's and when people get engaged, personally engaged and personally accountable, it is a very, very, very special thing. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think that's a, that's a really great answer. So, um, you know, to, to, to boil it down, uh, part of it is confidence building. The other part of it is empowerment. Undoubtedly, if you have, you know, compliance issues and concerns out, outside consultants, um, you know, are, are needed at some level. But, uh, you know, I think the, the, the empowerment and the confidence, you know, kind of involves a grassroots type effort and it, 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 it almost compounds slowly. Uh, do you have any, um, you know, amazing anecdotes or stories of a company that was on, you know, one, one side of the compliance pendulum and they uh, moved it into the other side of say the compliance pendulum and also uh, had a significant impact on little Q quality. Oh yes. The, the, the first organization I told you about where I was inspired, <clears throat> that organization was successful in. Well, you're talking about the one with the, with the uh, quality or excuse me, with the uh, complaint. The corporate, no, the corporate quality um, effort that we had to create a corporate quality. System. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and what was interesting, as I said, their, their first focus was on compliance but anybody you talk to who knows the organization uh, that I'm referring to and, and people within that organization will tell you that they spent the next nine years after the uh, corporate warning letter was removed in working on their, their quality system. They never stopped. And, and so um, 
there there was it was very interesting too within that process um and believe me i was the first person to say what why are we doing this they the first thing they worked on was a, a quality policy statement and i just said a little bit ago that's not going to be enough but the quality policy statement was was one that was very personal and they didn't just put it out there they actually made road trips with the executive manager locations and they talked about quality personally themselves and they invited this is important they invited the organization to come along with them to take that journey with them and so it was the first step it was the first step toward that culture of quality they weren't going to get it they knew they weren't going to get it by having the quality policy changed but they were going to get it by making that quality policy meaningful and then walking the talk that was behind it so you know that's probably the one organization that that i look at and, and i say to date was probably still the best in terms of having completely transformed themselves holistically um so yeah there there's there are special circumstances but sometimes it's hard in in some of these i'll call them uh, battles of of getting out of compliance trouble to to create those circumstances and it just takes a special effort by management again it's management responsibility it's leadership it takes a special effort to begin that process and then to make sure that they stay behind and stay engaged and stay accountable to seeing um, our true result achieved. Um, you know, one of the one of the quotes that you have, um, in your book is, uh, I think it's uh, normal people, brilliant processes, brilliant results to that effect. <laughs> there, um, yeah. 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 Uh, does it take a brilliant leader uh, to, to go from one side to the other? No. Um, it takes, so this is why, again, the, the next step beyond the concepts in the book was to say, okay, well, here's not the only way to do it, but here's how you can do it. Um, the, the quote is, was a quote where it was a, a, an honorary chairman of Toyota saying, we achieve brilliant results from average people achieve average results from brilliant people and so the concept is I would rather less I would rather see uh, less brilliant leaders in in terms of in the moment how about before the moment a brilliant leader to me says hey why don't I create a process that enables me to achieve predictive quality management and and I start that process in play and a year from now, two years from now, a decade from now, let's see where we are. To me, they be, they go from the brilliance of, of um, leadership in that regard to being average normal leaders doing very special things because of what they put in place. So that's that's the, the way I would like to look at it. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I appreciate that. I think we touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, but I wanted to talk about your career trajectory. You know, you, you, you've, you've highlighted here um, a few times the importance of, you know, empowering the internal folks. Um, but, you know, in your career, you went from internal to external. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, and, yeah. And... Yeah, there, <clears throat> there were significant lessons learned. So 
you know, when I left the organization where, where I spoke of that I was um, one of the leaders in quality that created a system that brought it, you know, we worked in our organization to implement it and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> I mistakenly thought I had answers that could be easily transferable. And, and this happened all too often in the consulting industry. It, when you see medical device consulting companies who basically are marketing that they have very special people and they can bring their special people to help you, that's, that's somewhat the same message as telling uh, executives telling their people that you can't get the job done, we're gonna bring in external people. And so when I've had experiences externally, um, where I was most successful was where um, I was asked, can you create a solution and implement it? Um, but if, and, and this was me, you know, I, I was still there too, where I had to take it out of my head and out of my, my experience to say, here's what we're going to do. So I guess I would say I would rather see the consulting industry have an answer, have a solution. So if you're going to hire a consultant, if they say, we're just going to bring you good people, they're not the right people. If you can say, what are you going to do? And they can lay a solution on the table and they can describe that solution in terms of the framework and then get deeper in any of the parts so that, that, that you understand what it is they're going to bring. Um, that means it's been well thought out and, and, um, so what I've done in, in the course of my career is I've, the journey has never stopped in terms of when I left that company and I wrote a couple of books, but where it continued was the next step from the quality journey, the, the book, the concept was doing it. And I don't mean doing it inside of companies and walking away and doing it again. I mean, let's create the entire structure beginning to end so that it leaves nothing to the imagination as to how to do it. And then the next step would be, I'll say to companies, the first thing I want to do is come in and I want to show you a solution, show you a pathway. And if you want to adopt it, we can train your people. We can start there with your people. And if for whatever reason, because some of these companies are running really lean, especially in the environment we're in today, if for whatever reason you need external resources we're going to bring external resources that are trained in this very thing. We're all going to talk the same language, but I want to start with their resources and their people and then bring resources to augment their efforts. And so it's more of a, a support structure using the same foundational concepts and approach than it is people walking in, clapping their hands, saying, let's get to work and I'm going to bill you while I'm figuring out what we're going to do. So that's, that's my concept. Yeah, no, I, uh, I like that. And I think, um, I think that, uh, you know, what you said about companies, um, you know, I think the, the original question was that, uh, you know, you, you being an outside, you, you being an outside consultant that's coming in, it's almost a catch 22 that, you know, you're, you're coming in and you're pointing uh, management's head inwards and the primary focus uh, that, that you're you're pushing them towards is to focus inwards and you know where where extra I guess it's just kind of interesting the way that you framed it um, yeah that the, 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 you know the the essentially what I heard is the solution shouldn't be different because they presumably should have dealt with that same problem before 
Um, yeah, another way to say it though, and, and it, you know, quality big Q has has been, I think, an underserved, or has been a, has been a part of the organization that has underserved the larger part of the organization. Um, <clears throat> quality is always left holding the bag when something goes wrong, but they're they're typically what they're doing is they're executing a system. Very rarely are they given a budget to create. Um, so they're doing quality operations work. They're not given the time, the resources, the you know the the the, the effort is not put in to improve the quality of the quality system. So what I would rather do with an executive team is inspire them that this stuff's been done. And all I did was try to create a methodology uh, and uh, an approach for taking them from one place that's very reactive and, and to a place that can be much more predictable. And whenever you execute this, you should expect a return on the investment to your business. Over the long haul, your quality should be free because it does pay for itself. Yeah, that's excellent. the concept. Excellent. Um, we're, we're getting close to, to our time here, but uh, if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive in our space, who would it be? I think it would go back to Philip Crosby. I think he, he's passed on. Um, there are a lot of quality gurus. But I think I'd rather take what I've created today and lay it at, you know, on the table in front of him and say, is this how, what you envisioned? Is this how you've seen this unfolding? Because he had a vision of what quality is free was about then. And that was 1979. And it sure would be interesting to see if uh, I have created something that would have met his expectations today. Yeah, that's so that's so cool. Um, well, uh, I, I will uh, get his book. And uh, I'm really, really honored to have you on here. Um, no, Larry, I'm, 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 I'm sure we'll have you on again. Thank you, sir. Thank you.